As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you would teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. You are good and do good. Teach us your statutes, so that we may keep your precepts with our whole hearts, delight in your law, and learn your will in Christ. Hear us, for we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we'll read the first eight verses of John chapter 15. As I said, we'll consider this in connection with Lord's Day 24, the Catechism. So John chapter 15, in the midst of Jesus' farewell discourse in John's Gospel, and we'll read the first eight verses where Jesus declares, I am the true vine. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. This is one of those passages that helps us to understand what it is to be fruitful in relation to Christ. Um, And this is an important text that comes in connection with the catechism just talking about justification. Now, it's been a while since we handled justification, so at the risk of trying to preach all of Lord's Day 23 and then preach Lord's Day 24, um, we need to remind ourselves about justification. And what that simply means is it teaches us how we're right with God. Uh, that Christ has satisfied all the obligations, both for obedience to God and paying for our disobedience. He's secured for us all the blessings of salvation, that we are right with God solely by faith in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Him, we have forgiveness of sins and we have eternal life. And it's not of anything in us, it's out of sheer grace God grants these things to us. And the natural question that often comes from people is, well, then how should I think about my good works? Um, the, The thing we always want to make clear when it comes to the question of justification, the question of how I'm right with God, is trying to make sure our good works don't enter in, that we focus ourselves entirely on the righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction of our Lord Jesus Christ, how He lived a holy life, how He obeyed all of the commandments of God in righteousness, how He died for our sins so that salvation is entirely gracious and comes to us completely on account of the work that Christ has done. And it's only natural when you fully understand this and when you fully grasp this to have then questions 
How do my good works factor in? Are my good works as a Christian unimportant? Um, If I don't put any importance on my good works for how I'm right with God, does that mean I will become careless about how I live? Does that mean I'll become indifferent to godly living? And the Bible is certainly not indifferent to godly living. And so there are a variety of questions that come up in connection with justification, and several of them are asked in Lord's Day 24. And we want to think about how what Jesus says about the true vine, His fruitful branches, and His Father, the glorified farmer, um, how those things come to us in these passages, and how this helps us understand how we should think about our good works in connection with justification. And that's why I want to think about John 15 and these few verses in connection with those questions. And this is simply how Jesus proceeds to explain to his disciples about the nature of the true vine, about the nature of his fruitful branches, and the goal of the, glorif- of the glorifying of the farmer. So that's how I want to think about this text together. The true vine, his fruitful branches, and the glorified farmer. Now, when I say it that way, I don't mean he's, glori- he's a glorified farmer in the way we sometimes talk about, you know, he's a glorified this or that. We don't mean it that way. We mean the Father who is glorified as the farmer. Uh, but I think all of these things in connection help us to understand where our good works come from and help us to focus our, our hope and our comfort on the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins there, I am the true vine. We know if we have any familiarity with John's gospel that I am statements are very important in in the gospels. Jesus makes a number of them. And they're always important. The words he uses are always very descriptive and always set him in contrast with things that have come before. Um, If we think of him saying, I am the true bread that's come down from heaven. He's distinguishing himself there from the manna that came down from heaven. He is the true bread. Um, He says, I am the light of the world. He says that particularly when there's a festival going on in Jerusalem where they put two big lights up. Um, And Jesus is saying, we have lights in Jerusalem for this festival, but I'm the light of the world. Um, That's an important difference. Says, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, Those words of description being the the true bread, the light of the world, uh, the good shepherd are all important. And now Jesus says, I am the true vine. And if all of those other things are connected with things that have come before, we should, as we've come to this point in the the gospel of John, ask ourselves, in contrast to what? Why is it important that Jesus is, why does he not just say, I'm the vine? Why does he say, I'm the true vine? What is he meaning to bring up in his disciples' minds. Well, in the Old Testament, we come across the imagery of a vine again and again. The prophets often used that imagery. Ezekiel uses it in Ezekiel 15 and 19. Jeremiah uses the image of a vine in Jeremiah 2. Isaiah uses the image of a vine in Isaiah 5. And when when the prophets used these images, what would they often use them for? How would they bring them to bear. They would say, you know, God was like a farmer who planted Israel as a vine. And he cared for it, and he cultivated it, and he wanted to find fruit in it. But when he came to look for fruit, there was no fruit. 
when he came to, to look at this vine and to try to find some fruit there to look for, he didn't find anything. And the prophets used this to say, this is what Israel is. This is what they've become. A vine that is fruitless. Um, we could go to any one of those passages, but if you want to look with me at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, there's a well-known vineyard imagery there. And Isaiah says this in the name of the Lord, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It's a very sad picture, isn't it, of God saying, what more could I have done to cultivate you as my people? And what I looked for what I wanted from you. When I looked for justice, I found bloodshed. When I looked for righteousness, I found the outcry of those who are being treated unrighteously. Um, this imagery of a vine comes out to say God planted it and it didn't bear any fruit. It was fit only for destruction. And the prophets come to that image again and again. And now Jesus picks up that image and says to his disciples and to us, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That is such an encouraging thing to know. It's such an encouraging thing for him to say because the divine imagery was so often a prelude to judgment, a prelude to seeing how God's people had failed to do what they ought to do, had failed to bear any fruit. But what does Jesus announce as he says, I am the true vine. He's essentially saying, I am the one the Father has planted, who He's cultivated, and when He comes looking for fruit, He finds it. I am the true vine that has actually borne fruit, that has actually done what the farmer wanted when he planted it, has borne the fruit that God has desired. This is another way of Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of the promise. Here now is the true Israel come, who's not a disappointment, who's not one who fails, but who's planted in holiness and grows up in righteousness. When the Lord comes looking for justice, He finds justice. 
When the Lord comes looking for righteousness, he finds righteousness. This is good news that the true Israel of God has come. Out of Egypt, God has called his son, he's planted him, and he's grown, and he's fruitful. Just as Israel had bread from heaven, but never had the true bread from heaven. Just as Israel had lights, but not the light of the world. Just as Israel had shepherds, but never the good shepherd. They were a vine, but they were never a true vine. And now Jesus says, I am the true vine. The true vine that's come into the world. He embodies the true Israel of God. The one vine that actually produces not wild grapes, which apparently are no good, but the true grapes, the true fruit that God was looking for. Right? Um, I don't know if you've ever tried growing anything. I don't. I kill everything I touch. I don't know what the opposite of a green thumb is, but I have it. Um, I don't know if you've tried growing things, but if you've tried and it's been successful and you go out and you find what you look for, you understand something of that joy. You see your work pay off. Um, And that's the image that Jesus is giving us here. And that's why our connection with Jesus is vital. He is the true vine. He's the only vine that's ever born the fruit the Father was looking for. Um, And that's why if we understand that, we would not look for us to connect in some way our good works to His good works. Right? If, If we want to ask the question, who is the true vine? Jesus is the true vine. He's the one the Father looks to for good fruit. And if we really understand that, then the last thing we would do is come along and say, but let me add what I've done to what he's done. I've got some fruit too. Can I add that into what he's done so we make it better? Well, no, we would understand, no, if he's the true vine, if the Father finds the fruit he's looking for with him, that's all that's necessary. I think that's what the catechism is driving at in question 62 when it says, now why can't our good works be our righteousness before God or at least a part of our righteousness? There's a temptation to say, I, I know, okay, maybe I know that my good works can't contribute to the whole thing, but can't I contribute a little bit? Doesn't maybe the work I do contribute a little bit? Um, and no, I'm not the true vine. There's only one vine the Father has ever looked to and found the fruit that he was looking for. The righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. It's only the true vine who's ever produced perfect fruit. It's only the true vine who's ever produced perfect righteousness. And for us to try to depend entirely on ourselves would be crazy, but even to depend partially on ourselves would just be to add what we do to the perfection that He does. And the things that we could add to it are all imperfect, are all stained with sin. The Bible is very clear about our works. I think of Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Or we often think of our works in connection with Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He's a true vine. We're just fading leaves. What can we offer to His righteousness? And the good news is we don't need to offer anything. What's been offered by Him in perfection is all that's needed. We look to Him, and it sounds like it's too good to be true, but that's the glory of what our God has done. I said, I know you're a sinner, and out of sheer grace, I'm going to grant and credit to you by faith what Christ has done. The death He died for you, the life He lived in service to the Father, that all gets credited to you. And God looks at you now as if you were Christ, as if you had perfectly done everything as He did it, and as if you had never sinned or been a sinner. And it's our human inclination to say that that can't be, it's too good to be true, that that can't be enough. What? Surely I have to do something to contribute to this picture. And we want to say there's nothing that we could contribute And nothing that we need to contribute. And that's what God wants to drive home to us in this important doctrine. You are right with me solely on the basis of what my son has done. You are right with me. You have forgiveness of sins. You have have title to heaven because of what my son has done. And why does God want that driven home? Why is the Bible so emphatic that we get this right? Well, one of the principal authors of the Catechism, Clasper Livianus, put it in an interesting way. He said, really, there's two goals in the doctrine of justification. The first goal is to glorify God for what He's done. And the second goal is to comfort you that He's done everything for your salvation. Um, And anything we do to try to add our works risks compromising one of those two goals. If one of the purposes of justification is to give God all the glory for what He's done in sending us a Savior who was holy and who righteously obeyed all the commandments of God and who died for our sins so He would provide us everything we need for salvation. If I come along and say, but I have a part to contribute, We are going to necessarily lessen the glory, and ultimately we will increase the discomfort, because we'll start to enter into the equation for whether our righteousness is enough before the Lord. When we get the doctrine right, God receives the glory, and we get great comfort. Jesus has done it all. All to Him I owe. If we get it wrong, we compromise both of those goals. Um, To say that our works contribute is to diminish the perfection of Christ's work. To say that our works, that somehow some of our work is required, is to rob us of comfort. To always leave us wondering if we need to contribute something, if we've contributed enough. Right? If salvation is partly of Christ and partly of you, we don't usually look to Jesus and wonder if He's done His part, but we will certainly look to ourselves and wonder if we've done ours. 
What will that do to God's people to rob us of comfort? Livianus went on to say, if we should depend in part on our own works, even a little, our consciences could never be at peace or assured that we are justified before God and can stand in His presence. Therefore, we can be so thankful for for the way Jesus proceeds through this text and says, I am the true vine, you are the fruitful branches. So that we understand the proper relationship between fruit and our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he gets. Now, don't despair. We're we're well into the passage, even though it seems like we've only covered the first part of verse 1. Um, stick with me. We'll get there. Um, but it's important that we understand Jesus is the vine, right? He is the true planting, the fruitful vine of God. We are the, the fruitful branches. Branches grow out of the tree, out of the vine, and they draw their life from the tree. And that this is such an important text because it helps to teach us how God works out from Christ into His members. Because if we don't understand these relationships, we won't be able to apply these truths for our comfort. Because I think every Christian who reads this text, every person who's been moved by the Holy Spirit to understand them, you read this text and if someone were were to say, do you want to be a faithful branch? Do you want to be a fruitful branch? We would say, yes, I do. And then if someone turned and said, okay, are you? a fruitful branch. Um, We might get a little more discomforted by that question. Uh, Maybe we would have more difficulty answering that one. I want to be. I'm not sure if I am. And Jesus doesn't want to leave us in the dark. He certainly didn't want to leave his disciples in the dark to go away and then try to decide what their identity is. And so the first thing he does is he makes their identity clear in this text. I am the vine, you are the branches, and how do we know that the disciples were true branches? Because he tells them. In verse 3 he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, we're making progress. We're already at verse 3. Already I'm clean, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now is Jesus mixing his metaphors here? Has he moved from an agricultural metaphor somehow to a a laundry metaphor? Um, Is he moving from gardening to the kitchen? No, he's continuing that metaphor. Um, What that word for cleaning really means is pruning. It's the same kind of word you would use. Um, I don't usually trot out Greek words because they're I'm not a Greek expert, and neither are you, and there are some in our crowd, and so I always wonder about it, but there are some times where you can hear the similarity. Uh, When he says prunes, kathairo. When he says clean, katharos. Right? Even if you don't know Greek, you can hear the similar sounds in those words. And what is he saying? You know you're a fruitful branch because you've been cleaned, because you've been pruned. Those are the fruitful branches. They are the branches a father has pruned so that they would bear much fruit. And how does the father prune his branches? By the word of Christ spoken in the world. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You can be assured that you're a faithful branch because the father has pruned you by my word. 
My word has, the word of the Father has come to you by me um, with the power of the Spirit that you might be pruned, that you might be fitted to bear fruit. And that should be a comfort to us because what is it that makes us then fruitful branches? It's the word. It's the word of Christ applied to us by God. It's the law and the gospel. By God coming to us and declaring to us our need of a Savior and the Spirit testifying to us, the Savior that's been provided to us in Jesus Christ, the Spirit that's been given to us that will cause us to bear much fruit, much fruit. The Word coming with the power of the application of the Spirit, it's that that makes a branch fruitful, produces faith and love in the life of God's people. It's God who does the pruning. And so our inclination when someone says, are you a fruitful branch, is to turn inward. I don't know, let me think about myself. But what does Christ mean us to do? To turn outward and to say, has the Word come to you? If the Word has come to you, it's pruned you, it's made you a fruitful branch so that you would bear much fruit. You are a fruitful branch if you believe in the Word of Christ and trust in Him alone for your salvation. Jesus doesn't call us to look to ourselves to determine our identity. Again, that's always going to rob us of our comfort. He calls us to look to Him. He comes to make our identity clear, not to give us a confusing question that we go and ask questions about. Um, He makes their identity clear, and then He makes their calling clear. If you're a fruitful branch, what ought you to do? Abide in Christ. And there too, it makes perfect sense with what he said. If our fruitfulness depends on our connection to the true vine, if he's the vine and we are the branches that grow out from him, we understand how only through connection with him can we continue to be fruit-bearing. That apart from him, there is no possibility of bearing fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. Um, And we understand that too from a tree metaphor. If you have an orange tree in your backyard and you really want to get oranges off the tree and you cut a branch off of the orange tree and you set it in your kitchen and wait for it to bear oranges, how long will you wait? Right? No green thumb. Even I know that won't work. That, that branch will not bear any fruit. In fact, any life that's in it will just wither away. And then what will it be good for? Firewood. I don't think necessarily that verse 6 is an image of hell. It's just an image of what you do with branches that are no good for fruit bearing anymore. Um, You might do any number of things with the branch, but it won't be any good to bear fruit. It doesn't work that way. It's only in connection with Christ that we can bear fruit. So it's no surprise that he tells us, your clear calling then as a fruitful branch is to abide in me. It's only through Him that we can do anything. When we abide in Christ, we will be fruitful branches because we will, we will have that vital life of the vine flowing through us to bear fruit. So Christ comes to make their identity clear, to make their calling clear, but also to make His help clear. Or again, there would be little comfort in the verse if Jesus only kept saying, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. But what does Jesus continue to say to them? Not only assuring them of their calling, but assuring them of his help. 
Abide in me, and I in you. That makes all the difference, right? Being in Christ is a call. The assurance that Christ will be in you is the glory, is the hope, is the help. Um, we, we can think of it in, the, in this way. You know, when, you, when you're going to cross a busy street with a child, you say to the child, take my hand. Um, it's not them holding on to you that makes them safe crossing the road. You tell them to take your hand, but what makes them safe? Your hold on them. And Jesus is not just calling us to abide in him. He's giving us that promise, I will abide in you. That's where we draw our hope. That the true vine promises he will abide in us. He promises that in verse 4. He promises that in verse 5. He promises that in verse 7. Abide in me and I in you. That, that's the hope. That's the, the help of the Christian in distress, to know that Christ is abiding in us. The true vine who the Father is pleased with is abiding in His branches. That we have that vital connection with our Lord. And that there's always help for those in whom Christ abides. It's a wonderful promise in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's help for those who call out to God. And where is the center of our hope? That we are in Christ. And because He abides in us, we can have that hope. That's why to in any way try to put good works into how we're right with God would really be to put the cart before the horse. It would like be saying to a branch, you need to bear fruit and then you can be part of the tree. It would take that, that branch again, cut off in the kitchen and saying, you know, when you grow an orange, then you can be part of the orange tree, but not until you do it. That would get things exactly the wrong way around. That's not how fruit flows. It flows from the vine to, through the branches and bears fruit. And that's why our good works can't contribute to our justification. It comes, everything comes from God. We can't merit anything. Anything we produce comes from Him. Right? Question 63, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited, it is a gift of grace. We couldn't bear good fruit and then say, I'm going to take credit for this. Because if we track the good fruit back, we'd say, where does it come from? It grows out of the vine. If you hadn't been engrafted into Christ, there would be no fruit bearing. So we can't say, I've done something for you, God, when He's done everything for us and in us. Um, but here's the goodness of our God. Even the things that He has produced in us, He rewards us by His grace. It's all of grace all the way down. We don't earn anything from God by our good works. And it also answers the question to anyone who would say, but how can you know you won't fail to produce fruit? If your good works aren't part of your righteousness before God, how will you know that you won't become indifferent to them? Um, because this teaches us you cannot be engrafted into Christ by the Father and be pruned by His Word, by the Spirit, and not bear fruit. It's an impossibility. 
That's why question, question 64 is important. Doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce gifts, fruits of gratitude. You cannot be vitally connected to the vine and not produce fruit. It's an impossibility. He will not fail to be fruitful in us by His Spirit. And that's why this is, this is given to us not just for our comfort, but for God's glory. It would be wrong for us if we didn't stop and consider the glory of the farmer when we talk about all of these things. Now, the glorified farmer is the goal of everything. Our passage begins and ends with the Father. Right? It's important that we don't miss the point of this text, that the goal of the true vine and His fruitful branches is all to glorify the Father, who is the vine dresser or the farmer. The passage begins and ends with the farmer. He is the vine dresser who planted Jesus as the true vine, and He is the one whom Jesus has come to glorify. Uh, what, what is the, the point of the true vine coming and the fruitful branches being grafted into Him, that the Father might be glorified. Glorified in what He, what he does. Think of the glory that Jesus brought, brought to His Father. Right? Jesus invites us to think of the, far, of the Father as a farmer who plants this crop and comes and sees it grow up exactly as He's wanted to. It's sort of like thinking about a farmer who who grows this prized crop and takes it to show it off at a fair and is so proud of it because he put the work into it and and what comes forth just makes him happy, uh, brings him joy that exactly what he's intended has come forth. That's what Jesus was for the Father. Right? Think Think of how many people the Lord has planted and how few of us grow up to what He wants. In the whole history of the world, the Father planted a people, and they continued to grow up and not be the kind of people He wanted them to be. Adam failed. All of His people failed. Israel failed. They never came up as the people He wanted them to be. And then Jesus comes into the world. And here finally is someone who glorifies the Father who the Father looks to and finds nothing to find fault with, is just glorious. And the Father had pruned Jesus with His Word. He grew, we're told in Scripture. He became strong. He became strong in the Spirit. He grew in wisdom and favor before the Lord. And the favor of the Lord was on Him. All those things are said to us in the Gospel about the cultivation of Christ. And he grows up to full maturity and he does perfectly before his father. And there's nothing his father can look to and find fault in. Jesus was fruitful, full of good works, faithful in all he was called to do, without spot or blemish, in every way what the father was looking for. And we have been grafted into him. And now in Him we've become a people who also the Father looks to and is pleased with what He finds. Not because we bring something in ourselves that's pleasing to Him, but because Christ has produced something in us. 
all of those people, all of those people for generation after generation who were failures in themselves still could look to the Savior that was to come. And in Him, the Father would look to them and be pleased with what He saw. He's glorified in the fruitful branches that Jesus has produced, where the life of Jesus has passed into His members and they have borne much fruit. We glorify God when we do what He's called us to do. We glorify God when we recognize our identity and we recognize our calling and we recognize the help of Christ and we go out and do those things. The Father is glorified. Like, a, like someone growing something who comes out and says, look at it, it's just what I wanted it to be. Do you ever worry that God comes and looks at your life and says, that's not what I wanted. I'm not happy with this. The glory is that He looks at us in Christ and says, this is exactly what I wanted it to be. There's nothing wrong with it. It's exactly what I wanted it to be. And when that happens in Christ, He's glorified. And that's what can help encourage us in the Christian life, to think of our good works not as something that earns us something from God or that's something that contributes to our salvation, but something that makes our Father glad, something that makes our Father smile. We know that when we do it, we glorify Him, and we know that that's why Jesus came in the first place, to glorify His Father. Right? Sometimes people say, well, you believe in this doctrine of justification. How will that be an incentive to do good work? Well, what incentive is there then? How about the glory of the Father? To know that the Father who has planted the vine and grafted us into the vine and pruned us by His Word and made us fruitful, to know that when we do what He calls us to do, He smiles on it. It does what we're called to do, which is ultimately to bring glory to Him. I don't understand it when people say, where's the motivation? That's the motivation. We sometimes think of Eric Little, the Olympic sprinter, who, who would say, the Lord, and you know, they made the movie Chariots of Fire based on him. And there's that wonderful quote in the movie, I'm not sure if he ever said it, but it's still a good line. He said, God made me for His glory, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I can feel His good pleasure. Why would we do good works? Because when we do them, we should feel our Father's good pleasure. That He's smiling on it and saying, that's exactly what I was looking for. That's what fruit bearing is at the end of the day. It's just Christ-likeness. And what did Christ come to do in everything He came to do? To glorify His Father. That's why we, we seek to bear fruit. Not to earn something from God. But because he knows that he, we know He smiles on it. That this is the purpose for which we've been made. What is the chief end of man? Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's the reason we live is to glorify God. 
and knowing us to be the people who have received everything from his hand, how can we not want to then go forth and try to do those things that make our Father smile? To try to seek to do all we can to abide in Christ and to produce good fruit, knowing that the Father is pleased with us in him. Do you see what glory this doctrine helps us to maintain for our God as the one who's done it all? And how it helps us to make sure we are comforted. That our good works don't have to contribute something to our salvation. But have something to contribute to our Father's glory. Um, If that's not motivation enough, I don't know what could be. And we should strive to live lives that are pleasing to Him uh, for the glory of His name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings that you give to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. We praise your name that in him grew up a vine that was pleasing in your sight, that when you looked to him for justice, you found it. And when you looked to him for righteousness, it was there. We thank you, Lord, by your grace that you have, as a a wonderful farmer, engrafted us into Christ and made us branches of that true vine. And that his life flows into us and through him we bear much fruit. We ask you to continue to prune us by your word. That you would help us to live by your spirit and abide in Christ. Relying on his ensured promise that he abides in us. And Lord we thank you for the privilege we have of glorifying your name in the world. And testifying to the goodness of the God who has saved us in his son. Thank you and receive our praise we ask for we pray these things in Jesus' name.